In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, God, for this day. We ask for your blessing in everything that we do, and we ask, O oh Lord, that we see your glory, and we feel your presence in our lives at all times. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, here it says we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Uh, good evening, everybody. I um, hope everyone's having a good day. Um, God willing, we're going to have another Q&A session tonight. Uh, please, if you'd like to submit any questions uh, for any future Q&A sessions, uh, we'd love to get um, a lot of different questions. Uh, please uh, use the uh, link here on the screen so uh, you can submit uh, the questions. Okay? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Uh, first question we have is, um, from my understanding, Pfizer and Moderna have used fetal cell lines originating from abortions for testing their COVID-19 vaccines, but not in the development or production of their vaccines. Does the church have any stance on these vaccines? Um, so I, I'm not an expert in this. Um, I did a little bit of research to try to get more information. I mean, the, the, it's right what it says in the question. So, so, but let me like be specific just so that we're all on the same page to understand uh, what, what this means, okay? So I'm gonna read for you a quote that I found um, on, a, on a website that's explaining this, okay? So it says, uh, the question is, do the COVID-19 vaccines contain aborted fetal cells, okay? So the answer is, um, th this is an answer from uh, an infectious disease expert, okay? Um, so he says, uh, uh, no, the COVID-19 vaccines do not contain any aborted fetal cells. However, Pfizer and Moderna did perform confirmation tests to ensure the vaccines work using fetal cell lines. But it's important to have the full context. Fetal cell lines are not the same as fetal tissue. Fetal cell lines are cells that grow in a laboratory. They descend from cells taken from elective abortions in the 1970s and 80s. Those individual cells from the 1970s and 1980s have since multiplied into many new cells over the past four or five decades, creating fetal cell lines. Current fetal cell lines are thousands of generations removed from the original fetal tissue. Vaccine makers may use these fetal cell lines in any of the following three stages of vaccine development. The first one is development, which is identifying what works. The second is confirmation, making sure it works. The third is production, manufacturing the formula that works. Okay, so there's three ways that these fetal cell lines are used in creating of vaccines. When it comes to the COVID-19 vaccines currently approved for emergency use, neither the Pfizer nor Moderna vaccines used fetal cell lines during the development or production phases. So of the three uh, pos the possible uses of these fetal cell lines in vaccines, um, the first one, development, it wasn't used. The, set, the third one, production, it wasn't used. Uh, it was only used in the second one, which is confirmation, which is the verification that the vaccine works. Okay, that's the one that was used. So no fetal cell lines were used to manufacture the vaccine, and they are not inside the injection you receive from the doctor. However, both companies used the fetal cell line HEK293 in the confirmation phase to ensure the vaccines work. 
all HEK293 cells are descended from tissue taken from a 1973 elective abortion that took place in the Netherlands. None of the COVID-19 vaccines in development use fetal cells taken from recent abortions. Okay, that's that's the end of the quote. So essentially what it's saying is um, uh, people who uh, performed an elective abortion in 1973, they harvested some of the fetal tissue from the aborted fetus and they kept this tissue and grew uh, additional generations of cells and have been doing so ever since. And they use these cells in various aspects of research. For, the, for this vaccine, this fetal cell lines that are, came from the 1970s was used to verify the efficacy of the vaccine that it's working as it should, but there are no uh, fetal cell lines or any type of fetal material in the vaccine itself, okay? Um, it's interesting that actually um, there are other vaccines as well that have been developed also that employ the use of fetal cell lines, uh, including rubella, chickenpox, hepatitis A. Um, it's something that's done. So as far as dating to the, to the question is what is the church stance on these vaccines? So number one, we are 100% against abortion. We don't sanction it. We don't allow it. We don't condone it. Um, and we try to stop it in every possible way, because we believe that um, after, uh, uh, after conception, after a sperm and the uh, egg uh, combine, then we consider this to be a human being, okay? We, we consider this to be a human being. So anything that will damage or abort uh, the, the, the fertilized egg, we consider this to be abortion, okay? So um, that being said, okay, um, let me give you kind of an analogy, maybe that will help us to understand like what's happening, okay? Imagine that you have a person who, um, you know, was killed by drunk driver. You know, they're driving and they're, they're, they were killed by a drunk driver. Um, and that person who died, the victim, he happened to be an organ donor. And after he died, they took, let's say, one of his major organs, like his heart or his kidney or something. And they used that to transplant in the life of someone else to save their life, okay? If we look at this situation, okay, all of us could say, you know, drunk driving is wrong and we do not condone drunk driving. And we wish that the person who was killed in this drunk driving accident was still alive and it is wrong what has happened, right? But at the same time, we will all look at the idea that a person's life was saved because of the, the organ transplant. And we will say, this is a good thing. Like it is a good thing that a person's life was saved, but it is a bad thing that that person died, right? But none of us would go to say, you know what, in order to benefit um, all of the patients that are in need of organ transplants, we condone um, drunk driving so that people will die in car accidents, so that people will be able to donate organs, so that people who are in need of organs will receive them, right? We would never say that, that's ridiculous, right? So it's possible for us to condone the original action, okay? But once the original action is done, right? And it is out of our hands and we, we cannot control it. The benefit that comes from it is something that in the case of the example that I gave, it's something that we applaud. It's something that is good, right? That came from it. 
So we look at the situation with the vaccines as in a similar way. We do not condone that abortion that happened in 1973, right? We don't condone that, uh, that, that abortion or whatever many abortions there were in that year that this, that this uh, came from. It says here that it came from a single abortion, it sounds like. So that one abortion, we do not condone it. And if we could have control over that, we would say, no, don't abort the child. Even regardless of how many people might be um, positively affected in the future because of vaccine research or whatever way, don't abort the child. But once the child has been aborted, okay, and science takes this uh, fetal tissue and they generate these fetal cells from there. And these cells are not used in the vaccine itself, but they're only used for, for a kind of testing. At that point, we look at the positive thing that came, which is the vaccine, and we say, this is good, right? This, the vaccine is good. The, the ultimate effect is good, right? But that doesn't mean the way that it came about is necessarily good, okay? So, so it's possible, it's possible to, to have both concepts at the same time. We condemn the original act, right? But we did not create that act. We did not condone that act. We did not you know, uh, approve of it or, or support it or encourage it, right? But once that act is done, right? There is a positive thing that can come from it, right? Just like how we say God takes uh, the bad actions of people and he turns them into something good, okay? So it is not the case that by somehow saying that by receiving this vaccine, vaccine, that somehow we are indirectly promoting abortion. No, we're, we're not doing that. And if anyone were to ask us about abortion, we'll give the answer um, that I said at the beginning. Okay. Uh, number two, should we ever backtrack our tithings that we may have missed throughout our lives or do we just move forward? Okay, so this question is referring to maybe someone who um, had not been tithing throughout their life or for a period of their life. And then um, at some point later on, they decide that they should be tithing. And so they begin to tithe. And then they, they ask, well, what about all of the previous time that I had not been tithing? Okay, so um, it's definitely, it's, it's good to fulfill the law that God has called us for, you know. Um, and if we look back at our lives and feel like we are able to even partially to pay the tithes that we hadn't been paying, um, that's a good thing. But I'm not going to say that this is, a, this is something that across the board, you know, as a rule saying everyone who, um, you know, had not been tithing at some point in their life is obligated to pay back the tithes for all of that, because that could place an undue burden on someone. You know, like I would rather tell somebody who maybe had never been accustomed to tithing in their life to tell them, OK, from today, you know, the, the, the reason the reason that people might not tithe is because they feel like it's a financial burden. Right. They feel like it's difficult. OK, so if I were to tell somebody who had not been tithing, if I tell them that you must start tithing from today and you must also back pay all of your tithes from the from the past, that's an even greater burden for them to begin tithing. You know, what is better is to say, OK, forget the past. You know, we all make mistakes, we all commit sins, we all do wrong decisions in the past. And some of those decisions cannot be undone and, you know, that we have to live with that, okay? But the, the question is, is what do we start doing from today? How do I start living from today? From today, I will start tithing, okay? If, from the financial perspective, I find that I am able to, you know, as, a, as, a, as an offering to God and, and through uh, my, you know, my, my financial ability at the present moment that I'm able to pay some of that back. I'm not saying that that's wrong. Okay. 
But I'm also saying that it's not something that I would place as a rule that should be applied to everyone. It's definitely something you should speak to your father of confession about because he knows your situation. He knows what you can and cannot do. Okay. So I don't want to make a general statement. The, the spirit of what you're saying is good, right? The idea that I want to correct wrongs, maybe that have been done in my life. But, but the correction of those wrongs sometimes might lead me into a bigger problem, you know, and be a bigger obstacle. I wouldn't want to tell someone, yes, you must back pay all your tithing. And then that person gets discouraged because it's such a difficult thing to do and they don't have enough money to do it. And then they stop tithing altogether. No, I would rather tell someone, don't worry about the past. Start tithing consistently um, uh, from now. And that is, that is your fulfillment of, of, of this command, right? Um, if you can do it with the guidance, with moderation, with, you know, according to your situation, talk to your father of confession about it. But I don't place this as a, as a rule for everyone that has to do that. Number three, should we look forward to a feast day? If we are contemplating Christ's incarnation through the Advent feast, what should the nativity feast, uh, sorry, the Advent fast, what should the nativity feast day be spiritually? I admit I'm thinking about and looking forward to what I'm going to eat. What should I be focused on instead of food on Thursday? Okay, so I think Thursday is referring to the nativity feast that has passed. Um, this question was asked before that feast. So what is the nativity feast? I mean, during the during the fast, we are we call it the Advent fast because it's like the preparation of the coming of Christ. We are fasting in preparation of the coming of Christ. The Nativity Feast is the realization of the coming of Christ. It's the remembrance, the celebration of the coming of Christ, of the incarnation, right? So everything that we had been anticipating all throughout the fast is being kind of coming to fruition, is coming to be realized and fulfilled on that day, right? So this is why we celebrate that day. The fasting is a day where, or a period where we are in preparation, right? Um, and it's a period of asceticism. It's a period of, of you know, self-control. Uh, it's a period of, you know, maybe doing prostrations, like, like extra restrictions on ourselves, um, and extra repentance, extra confession, extra reading, extra prayer, all these things, right? And then the feast itself is a day of celebration, right? And part of that celebration, okay, is um, for the body, not just for the spirit. It's, it's both together, right? Because we as human beings are both a body and spirit, right? We, we can't separate the two, right? Our spirit affects our body and our body affects our spirit. These are two intertwined things in our life. And so when we speak about a celebration, right? The celebration takes the form of a, a celebration of the spirit, and also a celebration of the body. Of course, there's restrictions on what a celebration for the body means, right? According to God's commands, but there is celebration, which is why, for instance, on the feast day, we break the fast. Like we break the fast because now it's a time for the rejoicing of our body, right? Um, we might have parties, okay? Uh, people might who have put off maybe birthday parties, even and stuff like that, that happened during the fast, they have them after the fast is done, right? So, um, the idea of um, looking forward to the food and that uh, is not wrong. That should not be the that should not be like the, the main focus. I mean, it's it's not that all we care about is the food. All I care about is yes. Now I'm I have to change my food to be food that doesn't taste very good, and I'm looking forward to being able to eat again. That focus is not right. That's the focus where it's like all I am thinking about is the physical 
physical, physical body, the physical desires, and I'm, I'm completely um, skipping and, and not paying attention at all to the spiritual nature of what the fast is about, okay? Um, the, 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 the fast is a period of, uh, you know, of, 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 of heightened spiritual perception. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a time where I'm thinking about the spiritual things even more than, than normal. That's what it should be. And it should be, like I said, a time of, of more repentance and more reading and more prayer and so on. But when that is done, there is rejoicing. It, it came to my mind, actually, the verse that uh, in John 16, 21, when um, Christ was speaking uh, like this, this small parable, he says what? A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she had given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You know, it's like there is a period of sadness or, or, or asceticism or, or like sorrow that is ends in joy. Actually, in, in the monastery, you know, the, the monks, they have a very strict uh, routine and they wake up at 4 a.m. every single day of the year. They wake up at 4 a.m. every day to pray the midnight praises and then have a liturgy um, every day. Um, so this is this is a very ascetic practice, right? The only day the monks sleep in, okay, is on the Feast of the Resurrection, right? On the Feast of the Resurrection, um, it is a day of rejoicing. So of the, like the greatest feast of the year. So not only is there uh, like like rejoicing in the spirit that we are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord, but we are also we're also uh, like rejoicing in the body, right? That that day the the monks are more relaxed, right? They don't wake up at four a.m. and we know that for a period of fifty days there is no fasting, right? So it's rejoicing both in the spirit and in the body. Okay, um, the the. I just want to emphasize the, the, the thing that I said at the beginning, that the body and the and the spirit are 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 one. We are we are we are both, right? So so we should attain we should attend to our spiritual needs and we should also attend to our physical needs. We cannot just ignore one of them, right? Even the physical needs, we can't just ignore our physical body, right? We are rejoicing with both. Um, Actually, in the early church, there was a canon that was uh, put into place saying that it is not allowed to abstain from meat on the Feast of the Resurrection. Okay, this was addressing what? It was addressing people who choose to live very ascetically that fast beyond the normal fasting seasons of the church. All right. So the, the you know, there are some people, for instance, where even when it is a not a fasting period, they choose to fast. Right. And they choose to abstain from meat. As, as a spiritual practice. Um, but according to the canons of the church, it is not allowed for you to uh, abstain and is not allowed for you to, to abstain from, from meat and to fast on the Feast of the Resurrection, right? Because it is a day of rejoicing, right? It's a day of, of, of letting go of, the, of all of like the strictest asceticism that we had practiced during the fasting period. So remember and celebrate um, the, the feast. Are women allowed to teach Sunday school or Bible study to both boys slash men and girls slash women? Are they allowed to give sermons during St. Mary's Feast, for example, to the entire congregation, akin to how laymen can be asked to give sermons? So the, the, the role uh, of women in the church um, is very important. Um, and a part of the role is defined by the scripture of, of to understand what is the scripture 
say about this topic, okay? So for instance, um, when Christ chose the apostles, okay, who is it that he chose? The 12 disciples he chose were, were men. And the 72 apostles that he chose were also uh, men, okay? The, the person that maybe you could say would have had the greatest insight into some of the, the hidden mysteries of the life of Christ that many people would have wanted to hear from would have been St. Mary herself, right? St. Mary, who was the most righteous, was the most holy, who was the one chosen by God to be his mother, the one who had an insight and experience raising Christ as a child and, and knowing him more intimately than anyone else, she could have been a preacher. Like she could have gone and preached and everyone would have listened to what she had to say because of her unique relationship with him. And yet we don't see that this ever happened. Okay, we don't see this ever happen. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, St. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. How do we understand this verse? This is not saying literally a woman should not talk, right? Because obviously we don't, we don't follow this, okay? This is speaking about the priesthood. This is speaking about how the authority of the priesthood is reserved for men and not for women. And this is not because men are better than women. Men have a certain role and women have an equally important role. But, but everybody has their separate role, okay? So this is why, for instance, in the church, we don't have uh, women giving general sermons and general teachings to the whole body of the congregation of the church as a whole. But we do have women who are teaching in different contexts. Like, for instance, in Sunday school class or in a Bible study, we have women that, that teach, okay? Um, this is for, like, the edification of a, a targeted group of people. But when you speak about the authority of, like, over the entire church, and specifically here in this verse, speaking about the authority of the priesthood, this was reserved only for, for men um, and, not, and not to be given to women. When St. Paul says that the wages of sin is death, does this mean eternal suffering in hell? I'm asking because if Christ paid the price of sin, which is death for us, then why do we still die? Okay. So what is death? When we think about death, the wages of sin is death, meaning the consequence of sin is death. What type of death is this? What is death? So we know that God is the source of life. All life comes from God. If, if, if God is the creator, God is the one who infused life. God is the one who breathes life into whomever he wishes to breathe life into. Okay. And so separation from God is death. Because separation from the source of life means that we do not have life, okay? And this life that we can speak about having life is multiple types of life. You can speak about the physical life, like being able to live in the physical world. You can speak about life in terms of um, like health, you know, like I'm, I'm healthy, I'm, I'm full of life. You can speak about the spiritual life, like being able to live eternally with God is also life. So death is the separation, right? So it's saying that, that sin, which separates us from God, results in death because separation from God is death. And, 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 and this physical death can be the physically dying of the body, right? It can be in terms of sickness and disease, the suffering of the body. And it can be spiritual death, which is spiritual separation from God in hell, okay? As is mentioned in the question, okay? God, when he warned Eve about eating of the forbidden fruit, Right? He told her that if she would eat of this fruit, she would surely die. This is what he said. She would surely die. But we see what happened to Eve is when she ate of the fruit, 
She didn't just drop dead on the spot, right? What kind of death did she experience, okay? The effects of this death, some of it was immediate and some of it was not, okay? So what came upon her and which came, comes upon all of us is there was the, the separation from God, okay? That happened very quickly. There was the physical suffering, which began to happen in her life and the life of Adam very quickly. And there was the inevitable physical death that would happen at the end of her period of life on earth, the mortality, okay? So there was the physical suffering, there was the physical death, there's the spiritual separation from God. All those things happened after she sinned, and all those things were never intended by God, okay, from the beginning. There was no intention for human beings to experience physical suffering in the world. That is not the world that God made. God made a good world. God made a world that was full of good things so that people would enjoy them, right, so that we would feel at peace and comforted in the world. Okay, not a place where we would experience physical suffering. Also, God never intended for us to die because there was no, what is death? There would have been no such thing as death because we are in the presence of God who is life. So there is no way for us to die. There is no such thing. And when we would eat of the tree of life, which God had placed in the garden, this was for etern eternal life. Okay, so there was no physical end and there was a spiritual life as well because we are, our, our spirits are fulfilled by being in the presence of God and we are not in, in any kind of separation from him, okay? So never, God never intended for us to experience any of that. Um, but immediately after the fall, okay, Eve, for instance, God told her she would begin to have pain in childbirth. He told Adam that he would have pain in working the land and to feed himself, okay? And so in the spiritual sense, the separation from God the ultimate separation from God, the eternal separation from God that has no recovery is, is hell, okay? That is, that is the, like the, 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 the finality of someone who has been separated from God and never turns, never repents, never changes, and to be separated from God forever in hell, okay? So the question then is why do we still die, okay? What is it, what is it? That's what the question is asking, right? Saying, if Christ paid the price of sin, Okay, then, which is death, then why do we still die today? Okay, so we have to ask, what do we mean by die? What does it mean to die? Okay, usually when we speak about death, we mean the death of the body, right? The death of the body. So why, why do our physical bodies still die? It is because our bodies have been corrupted by sin. Okay, if I read in, in Genesis 3 verse 22, um, this is where God is speaking to Adam and Eve about how they will be ejected from the Garden of Eden. Okay, and the reason they are rejected from the Garden of Eden was not as a punishment. It is because Adam and Eve had become corrupted by sin, right, by their disobedience. And so having been corrupted, if they would then eat of the tree of life, they would live forever in, in, in corruption. They would live forever in death. They would live forever in separation from God, right? This is in Genesis 33, 22. It says, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, meaning eating of the tree of knowledge, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Right. So, so what is what is the meaning here? God does not want Adam and Eve to live forever. Why? Doesn't that, that sound counterintuitive? Doesn't he want us to live forever? He wants us to live forever 
in our glorious bodies. He wants us to live forever in union with him, but he doesn't want us to live forever in a state of corruption. And because we have inherited the state of corruption, right, from Adam and Eve, and we, we have this corrupted nature, that corruption is what dies. That corruption is what, is what causes us to die. Yes, the Lord has conquered death, which is why when we die, this is not something that results in eternal death or eternal suffering. Instead, that actually is what opens the door to eternal life because after we die, we go to paradise, right? So the concept of death, right, of our bodies is no longer something that should be frightening. That's something that should be painful and, and scary to us, right? Of course, it's, it's scary because it's unknown, right? But, but what death is, is a, a way for us to go to paradise now because we have been uh, glorified. God is glorifying us. God will grant us glorifying bodies, okay? Um, in Philippians 3.21, it says, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So God is the one who's transforming the lowly body, the corrupted body, that it may be a glorious body. This is what is going to happen at the second coming, that our God is going to resurrect our bodies, make them to be glorious bodies, that we will be returning again to our bodies and live forever with him, with the body that we have. Okay. St. Paul also spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he spoke about the general resurrection. So the idea here is that God is allowing our physical bodies to die. He is allowing them to die because they are, they are corrupted. It, it, that is the reason, okay? And actually, this is a blessing. You know, as much as we don't want death, it is a blessing so that we do not live forever in our corrupted bodies. They need to die so that then we are resurrected in, into glorious bodies. And actually, it is through baptism. You know, we believe that through baptism, we really we receive a new spiritual life, right? We speak about in baptism that we are dying and being resurrected again, okay? So we receive a new spiritual life in baptism. We, we receive work. We are recreated, but our physical corrupted body still must die, right? So that we can receive these glorified bodies. Number six. I believe the church starts the new biblical readings for the next day at 6 p.m. of the previous day. If so, why the liturgy of the feast has to finish after midnight instead of starting at 6 p.m. the night before the feast and ending earlier? Okay, so the church day is considered from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. the next day. This is why that when we have the Vespers praises, the, 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 the sorry, the Vespers service, we have the Vespers service on the night before a liturgy. That Vespers service is considered to be like the first prayer of that liturgical day. And the readings that we read of that Vespers service is related to the following day, because the following day is really part of the same liturgical day. Okay. So the question here is saying, um, if that is the case, then why, when we have um, one of the nighttime feasts, like the nighttime feasts, which are the resurrection, the nativity, and the theophany, okay? If that is the case, then why uh, do the feasts have to finish after midnight? Because that's what we do, is we start the, the, the liturgy at night, and we continue until after midnight, and we start, start communion at midnight, or after midnight. Why do we do that instead of starting at 6 p.m. 
the night before the feast and ending earlier. Okay, so um, like I said, there's three feasts that are nighttime, Nativity, Theophany, Resurrection, okay? Um, when, when you look at the Nativity, the birth of, of, of Christ, this is believed to have been in the morning um, and the resurrection also took place in the morning, okay? So the liturgy starts at night and ends early in the morning as kind of a remembrance of uh, the, the time of the nativity of Christ and the time of the resurrection of Christ. Um, regarding the Feast of the Theophany, this was done also at night when Nicodemus visited the Lord at night um, in secret and Christ spoke to him about the mystery of baptism. This is in John chapter three. Um, this was done at night. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Also, there's a tradition that says that the Lord was baptized early in the morning. So, so starting this conversation at night, we start the liturgy and the Lord being baptized in the morning. So it's like we've continued the liturgy and, our, uh, and, and complete it um, by the next day in the morning. Um, in all these cases um, as well, we take communion um, after midnight because you cannot take communion twice on the same day. So the, the, the morning of, right, the morning of is the Baramon. And if there's a liturgy of the Baramon, then you take communion in the morning and then you would take communion again in the nighttime feast. So we start the feast at night, and instead of taking communion a second time on the same day, we wait until after midnight, end the liturgy, and then take communion um, there. One of my kindergarten students asked me about why it is that God allows natural disasters, like tornadoes and storms, to happen. I tried to answer him and explain the love of God to, to his children and how what matters in our life in heaven is uh, our life in heaven and that everything that happens here is to help us come back to God and how the world started to have these disasters after the sin of Adam and Eve. And another student asked me about what would happen if Adam and Eve would have apologized in the Garden of Eden after they fell in sin. After answering both kids, I felt that they didn't understand the answers. How could I have answered both of them in the way that they could understand? So there's two questions. The first one is, why does God allow natural disasters? If God is loving and kind and good, why does he allow natural disasters? So as we said earlier, when God created the world, he created it in perfection. He created it to fulfill every need of man, and he did not create it to be violent. He did not create it to, to cause suffering. It was perfect. It was peaceful. It was abundant. It was ideal for human life. That is the way that God made it to be for us, okay? After the sin of Adam and Eve, their disobedience to God caused corruption inside of them and caused corruption of the world as a whole, which was the dwelling place of humanity, which was the place that God had given to Adam and Eve to tend to keep. It was their home. They corrupted themselves and they corrupted all the environment around them. This was not a, a, like a punishment that was given by God, but the natural consequence of what they had chosen to do right? The, the corruption around them. So um, God did not choose for it to be this way, right? But it gained this quality of corruption from our choices. And we suffer these things even today, not because of like the personal sins of certain people. Like, you know, some people will say, 
Like if a hurricane hits a certain area or there's some kind of a famine in a certain area, some people will say, oh, well, this is because those people, um, you know, were, were sinful people. Uh, no, there's no evidence to say that God, like, uh, is going to send certain catastrophes upon certain people, um, you know, because of something specific. We all suffer natural disasters, right? We all suffer from sickness and suffering. It's not because of any personal sin necessarily that we commit, but it is because of the communal sin that is in the world that has entered into the world and the corruption that has entered into the world because of sin. Um, so, uh, you know, an, an example of this is like when a person gets a severe injury, right? Their body might not function normally anymore, right? The person is suffering because of the dysfunction that is now in their body. And so we are suffering from the dysfunction that is in the world. So it is not that God is promoting natural disasters and God is promoting disease. Those are uh, deviations and dysfunctions from what God had created. And, and, and we are the ones who created those dysfunctions and not God himself. The second question is, what would happen if Adam and Eve apologized? Okay. We take the idea that God accepts our repentance and that God accepts our apologies. We take that very lightly. Right? We take it very lightly because we are so used to the idea that we do anything wrong, we ask God for forgiveness, and he forgives. Like all of us, that is our, uh, that is our understanding. That is our experience. Is, this is what we believe. Okay? But the reason this is the case, the reason that God can forgive us simply by us apologizing is because of the sacrifice of Christ. It's because of Christ's sacrifice that we are able to do this. Okay? This is why we see him as the Savior. He is the one who saved us from the corruption of the world. He's the one who saved us from ourselves. He's the one who saved us from our sin, okay? So God's intention from the very beginning was to be in perfect union with us. This is what his intention was. When he created Adam and Eve, he wanted to be in perfect union with them, for us to be very close to him. But God is pure and perfectly without sin. So anyone that is to be united with him also has to be pure and without sin, Right? Because he cannot be in union with something that is sinful. God cannot be. Right, His desire for us in the union between us and him is so intimate that he cannot be in union with us when we are full of sin. Okay, So when we fell into sin, we could no longer be united with him in the way that he desired. It's like uh, having someone who is wearing a garment that is fully perfectly white. And he comes to like hug up another person who has like, you know, wearing clothes that's all full of mud. The person who is wearing the white garment, if he hugs that other person, he will get the mud on him. He cannot be in union with him and remaining in who he is, remaining in his state of perfection and purity. Okay. So the idea of an apology, an apology would not fix anything because the separation has already occurred because our garments have become soiled with sin. It is not about an apology. It is not about uh, just saying sorry would not undo the effect of the sin that had happened, which is that we are now isolated and separated from God. It is not that God is so angry with us that he doesn't want to look at us, that he doesn't want to talk to us. You know, like we personify God in such a way that we think of him like a human being, you know, like somebody, someone who, who offended me in some way. I don't even want to talk to you. I don't even want to look at you in the face. That is not God. That is not how he saw us or he sees us. It became impossible for him to be in union with us because we separated ourselves far from him in a place that he could not 
He could not be in union when we are soiled and stained the way that we were. So it's not about an apology, okay? So the only solution that existed is for God to like recreate us kind of, you know, and recreate us, like recreate what, what has been damaged in us, right? To, to take off this garment of, of, that was stained and to put on a garment of incorruption on us. This is what God is now offering us in baptism. And of course, baptism only has its effect after the resurrection, okay? All of the story of the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection was so that now we have a means by which we are cleansed from this soiled garment, okay? And, and we are cleansed in the waters of baptism. This is what we mean when we say we have put on Christ. You know, we say we have put on Christ. What does it mean to put on Christ? It means that we have been recreated again and we put on this new garment, which is Christ. And so when God now sees us, he doesn't see the stains. He sees his own son. He sees Christ. This is now we have become sons and daughters of God be, through the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we have put him on. This is the act of salvation. The act of salvation is not just saying, you know what, uh, God is like saying, I was angry at you before, but I'm not angry anymore. That, that's not salvation. Salvation is not a change of God. Salvation is a change of us. We are the ones that have changed in order for us to be in union with him the way that God wanted to be in union with us at the beginning, right? So it is not about simply a repentance. It is about a recreation. We are recreated anew so that now we can be in union with God um, as he originally planned and designed for us to be. Number eight. I noticed that Protestant people prefer using the title Mother of Jesus over Mother of God when they speak about Mother Mary. While in our church, we typically say Mother of God. Is there a difference? So this is actually something that has changed over time. If you look at what the original Protestant founders believed, most of them still actually practice the intercession of St. Mary. Most of them still refer to uh, St. Mary as the mother of God, and they, they revered her, okay? It is only in more recent times that this idea of emphasis on the holiness of St. Mary, of her status, um, referring to her as the mother of God and so on has come into disfavor more and more like as the Protestant church has become anti-Catholic and kind of going against kind of its Catholic roots, okay? Um, in modern days, a lot of Protestants believe um, that she is simply like a vessel through which God chose to be born, um, but that she has no other special status. They don't regard her with the same reverence as we do in the Orthodox church, um, uh, remember, the Protestant church was born out of the Catholic church, and a lot of the Protestant beliefs is in direct rebellion to what the Catholic church believed before, right? That's why they're called the Protestants, because they're protesting against certain teachings of the Catholic church. And one of those teachings, right, was um, the role of St. Mary, okay? And some people treated her as though almost she is like a co-savior, like she is a... Um, she, she's like, she, she is like almost at the level of Christ when it comes to salvation, which is, which is wrong. And so people either through their misunderstanding or through the reaction of this wrong teaching overreact in the opposite way. So we say, okay, well, because people are maybe giving 
overemphasis to the work of St. Mary and salvation, for instance. No, so our response is going to be, though, no, we just treat St. Mary like any other person. She has no special status. She isn't she, at all, okay? Um, so that's also not right. Like, there is, a, there is a middle ground, okay? We revere St. Mary, not just in herself, but because of her relationship with Christ. We always see her through her, 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 her role as the mother of Christ, the mother of God. This is why when you look at the icons of St. Mary, the icon of St. Mary doesn't depict St. Mary alone by herself. It depicts St. Mary with the Lord Jesus Christ together because her significance is through this relationship, okay? And when we speak about like her role in salvation, right? Her role in salvation is not because she is the savior. It is because of her obedience and, and, and accepting what God chose to do through her and through the work of her son, that all humanity is saved. So she has a role, but it doesn't mean that she's the author of salvation. It means that she was a worker with God for the salvation of man. It doesn't mean that she is the one who brought the salvation. It doesn't mean that her, you know, that, that, that she was the, enough to bring salvation to humanity, but she certainly worked with God. God chose her to work with him in this process of salvation. And so for that reason, we, we revere her, we, we honor her, we venerate her for her sacrifice, for her obedience, for what she did. We honor her for this, okay? Um, the Protestants, they have one of the five solas. So the, like there's these five tenets of Protestantism, which are called the solas. Sola is a Latin word, which means only. So they have like these five principles. One of the solas and principles of Protestantism, which defines like the Protestant faith um, in contradiction to the, the Catholic faith, is solo deo gloria, which means glory to God alone. And so the idea here is that um, the, the church, like the Catholic church, has placed too much emphasis on glorifying uh, other people, whether it be the priests, whether it be the saints, or whatever, um, like St. Mary. And so instead, we should only offer God glory. But again, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a wrong argument, because the church is not the church is not trying to give glory to a saint the way that we give glory to God. It's a completely different scale and measure, right? We honor human beings, right? We honor human beings and we give them medals and we give them honor and we hold celebrations in their honor. Even when it's like human beings who are really, what exactly did you do? Like celebrities and actors and actresses and, you know, people that really in the, in the great scheme of things are not really that important. But for those people, we give them honor and we give them medals and we give them awards and all this. Right, and everybody is fine with that. But when we say to Saint Mary, you know, we give Saint Mary an, a status of, you know, being the mother of God because that is what God chose her to be. Somehow, there's something wrong with that. No, Saint Mary is not the savior. Saint Mary is not the mediator between us and God the Father. Neither is any saint. But Saint Mary did play a role in our salvation, which is to accept the mission that God called her for. Okay, but as I said, this change did not happen immediately after the Protestant uh, Reformation. For instance, let me read for you this quote um, from, um, uh, well, sorry, this is not a quote, but one of the things that Martin Luther actually believed is he did believe in the perpetual virginity of, of St. Mary, which nowadays most Protestant churches reject. And he also believed in, the, in calling her the mother of God. John Wycliffe, which is another famous like Protestant uh, reformer, he says what, it seems to me impossible that we should obtain the reward of heaven without the help of Mary. There is no sex or age, no rank or position of anyone in the whole human race 
which has no need to call for the help of the Holy Virgin, right? So this is quotations by Protestants, okay? Um, but there are others, even in the early days of the Protestant movement that disagreed with that, okay? Like Calvin, for instance, um, he says, I do not doubt that there are some ignorance in their having reproved this mode of speech that the Virgin Mary is the mother of God. You know, like, like he, 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 he finds it, um, he goes on to say what? For to say the mother of God for the Virgin Mary can only serve to harden the ignorant in their superstitions. So this, there's definitely not um, a uniform belief or practice, but definitely in more recent days, the, the kind of the, the idea of, of referring to her as just another girl um, who happened to be chosen by God for this and that she's not really that special um, is, is definitely more nowadays um, in the Protestant uh, church um, than it was before. Okay, this will be the last question. What does the verse in Hebrews 12, 14 mean in practical terms? So Hebrews 12, uh, sorry, 12, 4. What is the Hebrews 12, 4? It says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Here, St. Paul is speaking about um, the, the, the seriousness that we should uh, approach our salvation, right? We know that God has done what only God can do when it comes to our salvation. His death on the cross and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins is the only thing that could ever have granted us salvation. And this is something that no prophet, no angel, no human being, nobody else, nothing in all creation could have done except him. And God did this, right? So this is grace, right? Because God did this, not because we were deserving, not because we did anything at any point in time, to warrant this from him. He did this completely out of love for us, okay? This is the grace of God. But in addition to this, God, Christ, told us that there are certain things that we'd have to do, certain actions that we would have to do, right? Some of those actions, for instance, include repentance. Some of those actions include uh, like practicing the sacraments, for instance, right? So here he is speaking about our role in salvation. You know, sometimes we, we focus so much on God's role and, and we are comforted that God is doing his part and we forget our part. And sometimes the reverse. Sometimes we focus so much on our part and we forget God's part. OK, so so it's important for us to always keep a balanced view um, of, of what salvation is about. He calls us to do everything that was in our power because we ask the question of how much should I do? Do all you can do. Right. Like here, St. Paul, it says resist like you have not resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. Like 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 keep resisting, even if you have to even if you have to reach bloodshed, even if you have to shed your blood in the process of your struggle against sin, do so. Like, for instance, the martyrs. Right. The martyrs, they were willing to shed their blood for their salvation. Right. So what are some practical things we can think about of how to approach this? OK. Um sacrificing relationships or activities that lead us to sin okay that's that's something within our power to do it might be difficult for us to do right but it's something that we are called to do it's it's you know if and if we don't do it maybe god will come to us saying you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin you have not yet tried your best you have not yet struggled and 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 all the way to the maximum capability or ability that you have right you have not yet done so 
you know, maybe you're relying on the, on the grace of God. Yes. And we rely on the grace of God because we are always imperfect in achieving everything that we set out to do. But there's a difference between achieving it and trying to achieve it, right? Just because we fail at achieving something doesn't mean that we should stop trying to achieve. Because again, we believe that by the grace of God, he can grant us successes. It doesn't mean we will have 100% success. It doesn't mean that everything we, we seek after to do, it doesn't mean every sin that we repent of, we will eventually break and never commit again. But it means that this is the, the process, the re, this process of repentance, the, the things that God has called us for, this is the resistance. We are resisting sin. Even if in the end we fall and we are lifted up only by the grace of God, God still calls us to resist, sacrificing the things that make us to sin, spending less time on the internet and social media, right? Those are practical things that I can do to spend more time focusing on the spiritual things rather than the earthly things. Praying more, fasting more, and fasting more diligently, and fasting more seriously, and fasting with less compromises, and fasting with the spirit of fasting, and not just the changing of food, but the changing of mind, right? Something I can struggle to do, something I can strive to attain, something that I can repent of when I, when I fail to do. Confession, confessing more, being more diligent in my confession, making my confessions more uh, frequent, right? Um, Self-examination more reading more, reading more spiritual books, reading the Bible more, forgiving more, not holding grudges, reconciling with people more, being quick to forgive instead of quick to anger, right? Um, when I fail to get up more quickly, not to indulge in my failures and not to be cast down and full of despair because of my, all these are struggles, right? And they're struggles because they're hard. Like, like none of these things are easy and that's why it's struggle. It is a resistance, it's a fight right against the natural inclinations of our flesh we are fighting against it and so so here saint paul is saying you are called to to do this fight you are called to fight in every way you are called to fight if our if the question is well what is my role and what is god's role well god god's role we can't touch it we can't do anything he did what is my role how hard should i try try your best try the maximum do the maximum you're able to do right and we see the lives of maybe those who we call saints they are the ones that that really struggle to the end. Like they're the ones that give up their lives completely to the end because they 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 refuse to compromise. They they refuse to 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 do things halfway. They did it all. They went. They did everything they could do. So God is also calling us to do more. He's calling us to 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 do more. But the doing of more, okay, that those works that I'm doing are not what is bringing me salvation. Right. What's bringing me salvation is the work of God. Okay. And I'm sharing in his work. He is calling me to do something. It is a cooperation between me and God. God does his part. I do my part. But even when I fail, right, then I'm called for confession. I'm called to repent. This is this is my role. So this is this is the practical meaning and understanding of this, this verse. Okay. So we're um, we're out of time for today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, that you help us to meditate on your word, to understand your ways, to experience your love in our lives, to feel your presence and your peace. Teach us, O Lord, to be humble and submissive to you and obedient, even while we live in a place that is full of darkness and surrounded, O Lord, by those who hate you. We ask, O God, that you grant us to be a light to the world and always standing strong in our faith. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good night, everybody.